You're listening to the Assembly of Yahweh Sermon Podcast, recorded in Cisco, Texas. For more information, please visit hallelujah.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, good morning. How are y'all doing today? It's an honor to be here. Roger asked me what I was going to talk about. I said, I'm going to talk about love your neighbor as yourself. Before I start in, if you would join with me and pray. Yahweh Almighty King, thank you for your, for your grace that you poured out upon us. Thank you for your loving kindness. Yahweh, thank you for all your many blessings. Yahweh, I pray that you would give me your words and your wisdom because I'm too foolish for my, for my own. Yahweh, I, I ask that you would pour your spirit upon us that we may be a glory to you. And in your son, Yahshua's holy name we pray. Amen. Turn over to Matthew 22. I'm going to read 22 and verse 35. It's real short. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Yahshua replied, Love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so, our first and the greatest commandment is to love Yahweh. But what I want to talk about today and focus my attention on today is loving our neighbor. In a lot of ways, you kind of look at that loving your neighbor and you think, well, it's kind of cut and dry, you know, what's... What are we going to talk about? So let's start with breaking this thing up into maybe three parts. I want to talk about our neighbor. Who is that? I want to talk about love. How do we do that? And I want to talk about ourselves. So I think there's kind of uh, three different types of, of neighbors. These people that we, that we deal with each and every day, you know. You know, our, our first neighbors, I guess, in life are those, our brothers and sisters. But... As we start to grow and mature, eventually we kind of move out of our parents' house, right? We move into an apartment or a house or something, and we come up with these other neighbors, these other people. And uh, I, re- I remember um, some of my neighbors. One of, one of the neighbors that I had when I was a child, it's one of my earliest memories, actually, of my childhood was this old couple across the street on 13th Street. We used to live there on 13th Street, and there was this old couple. And the woman, especially, was a little grouchy, okay? Just a little bit super sweet in some ways, like they would invite you over for a snack. And then the next second, they'd be over there telling your mom that you're digging up their tulips, you know? We might have been digging up the tulips, but I didn't want her to tell my mother that we were digging up the tulips. She was always kind of, you, you never knew why you were getting in trouble, it seemed like. You were just getting in trouble because she would be over there talking to your mom and griping about something you were doing. And so there's these neighbors in our lives that sometimes have these characteristics. And, you know, for me, another type of person that I can really relate to, I can really relate to, is the neighbor that's a little noisy. 
I'm one of 11. So if you're one of 11, what that means is that kind of like our assembly here, there's a lot of children, there's a lot of kids, and they have a certain decimal level. All kids have this. So in our assembly, there's this certain amount of just noise that happens. Just, there's just an ambient level of noise. And that's how it was growing up. We lived in a house that wasn't terribly small, but it wasn't the biggest thing in the world. And there was just this constant noise all the time. It is noise, racket, whatever you call it, all the time. And so when I grew up and got my own place, I noticed, man, it is so quiet. So quiet around here. And I didn't really appreciate it. I really did not appreciate the quietness. I was used to noise. I was used to uh, sound. And so I thought to myself, what, what can I do? And so I went out and I bought the two biggest speakers I could possibly find. And I put them in my, I put them in my living room. And I would play my music on them, you know, and just as loud as I could, just big. I mean, they were the, you know, now we have these little bitty Bose speakers, you know, they're cute. Mine were the real deal, okay? And you'd put them at both ends of the room and you'd walk around and you could just be blasted with music. And that wasn't all I did. I got to thinking to myself, I always enjoyed the drums. I always enjoyed a beat to a song, you know. When I was younger, I enjoyed a lot of rap. I enjoyed a lot of, like I said, beat, the beat, the drums. So I started thinking to myself, so, you, you know, you have all that timing, you know? You're really good with timing. You might be a little bit offbeat, but if you worked at it, you could probably become a really great drummer. So you should get yourself some drums. So I went out and bought, bought myself some drums and I set them up in my house. And I never thought once about actually trying, asking somebody, how do you play drums? Or watching a YouTube video. YouTube really wasn't even around then. So I had that to fall back on. But I never even bothered to ask somebody, how do you play drums? I just figured like, all that rhythm that I had that jerky offbeat. If I practiced a little bit, I'd be really good. Uh, and so I started playing drums in my house. And every once in a while, you would just come home and you would find, like, I don't know what happened, but the drumsticks that I left on the drums, they'd just be missing, you know? And so I think my neighbors were just kind of coming in and taking my drumsticks and hiding them somewhere. I think, you know, if I was to go in the sound booth right here, even behind all this noise reduction wall here, if I started just crashing that cymbal and crashing that cymbal, it'd be about a minute before you'd be like, okay, guy, I get the point. That is annoying. I'm tired of listening to it. My son is practicing drums, and I can only listen for about five minutes, and then I'm like, all right, you're doing good, son, and just walk back into the house and let him keep beating around out there in the shop, you know because they're annoying, loud, all by itself just making this racket. And I think that's how some of us are, is we're these noise makers. 
You know, there's another type of, of neighbor that I've noticed, a person that I've noticed, and that's the one that's quiet. You know, the one that you, you, you kind of study his routine, get to kind of know him in terms of he comes, he leaves the house at 8, comes back at 5.30, doesn't really do much. Nobody really comes over to his house. He doesn't seem to, to really want to go anywhere. He seems to be pretty wrapped up in whatever it is he's got going on. He's got earphones on, and you'll see him taking out the trash, and you'll wave at him, you know, and he's just, you know, he lets you know, I can't talk, I'm listening to something that's really important, more important than you, and he just keeps walking. He doesn't, he doesn't want to interact with anybody. He's, he's wrapped up in his own concerns and his own pursuits. I find that's, that's how I am, too. Wrapped up in my own interest. And when we're like that, we can lose sight of a lot of the other people and things that are around us. But these are some of the different types of neighbors that we, that we have as we go through life. And at different points in our life, uh, I know for me, I've been all these people. I might be all these people at different points in a day. Let's talk about point number two, and that's us, that's ourselves. You know, when we're talking about love your neighbor as yourself, and when you think about yourself, you're like, well, that's the easy one. That's the, that's the one that you're like me. We just naturally have this bias towards ourselves, right? You know, we naturally want what's best for us. It's so hard to imagine loving someone as yourself and not treating them well, right? I like me some me, you know? So how am I going to treat this guy over here bad if I'm loving him like I love myself? So like I said, we, we all really appreciate ourselves a lot. Think about this, for example. Have you, have you ever seen... Or have you seen lately somebody with a camera? Pull out a camera and walk around a room. People kind of look at you. You can ask Walker about this later. He may tell you they don't. I don't know. But I think you will. Because it's odd to see people with cameras. Why? We always, we always had that other camera in our pocket, right? And you see somebody with a camera, you think, man, that guy must be a professional photographer. It's the first thing that pops into your head. Because we all have our phones, we all have this camera. And we like to take pictures of stuff. We enjoy that. We take so many pictures. We take pictures of ourselves, I've noticed a lot. Somebody once said, if you're not actually in the picture, pictures aren't all that interesting. And there's some truth to that. And maybe that's why, you know, Motorola, I don't know where I came up with Motorola. <laughs> uh, Apple, Apple has this feature on your phone. They got to noticing that we like, we like, I like some Josh, right? So this is so annoying to have this phone that you have to like turn around and you hope it's the right shot to take a picture of me, right? That's annoying. Why not just make it so we have cameras on both sides and that way I can look at the screen and see if this is the, a good picture of me. The camera makers guys figured this out. But we like it. 
We enjoy taking pictures of ourselves. We enjoy thinking about ourselves. But once we take a picture, what happens? Well, man, I got to show somebody. I got to show somebody this picture I just took of me. So what we do is we get on Instagram or get on Facebook and show everyone what we look like in case they all forgot. If you're like me, you hope they forgot. And you really don't want to remind them. And they really appreciate that. <laughs> we could create an, an identity that is not indicative of who we actually are. We can create an identity that's somewhat anonymous, that has anonymity, that's unaccountable. You know, we desperately want to show the world our very best side. We want them to be impressed. We want them to be impressed with our outside appearance. And if we don't like the picture, we can, we can so easily manipulate the picture. We can put a filter on it. You know, if we don't like what people are seeing on the outside, we can just change that a little bit, tweak it, edit it. You know, Joshua said to take the speck out of our own eye. He said, take the speck out of our own eye first. You know, the inward focus that he's referring to, we need to fix ourselves. The inward focus that he's referring to is difficult. And it seems to be, for me anyway, extremely slow process. A slow process. And you find that a lot of people don't, you might be working on yourself, but people may not fully recognize that because it takes time to grow and to mature. You know, being an online or having a Facebook page or an Instagram or whatever is not a prerequisite to being selfish. Anybody can have this focus on themselves. Focusing on how do we look on the outside. It can become the currency of our own worth. You know, if someone offends us, that's why we strike back sometimes so viciously. It's because we built this ideal of ourselves. We can't have somebody tearing it down. We can't have somebody telling the truth about us. You know, for me, I, I've discovered about myself that I really enjoy fun. I enjoy, you know, things that are uh, pleasurable. And I don't, I don't think I'm alone in that. This generation seems to be very much enamored with entertainment. Everything that we do, everything that we experience has been designed a lot of times to entertain us, to market something to us. You know, when Apple created the iPhone, they spent a lot of research and time on the box that the Apple phone comes in because they wanted to make sure that when you saw that box, when you saw their logo, when you picked up that box, there was, a, there was a weight to it, that it was designed perfectly. So that mentally your endorphins and, and your chemical reaction to that was one of pleasure, was one of enjoyment. But you know, everything that is attractive, that gives us pleasure. Everything that glitters isn't gold. It seems like to me that our pursuit of pleasure can leave us feeling hollow. This is especially true of things that we can see online. In fact, I believe it can be very detrimental to our mental health. 
It can erode our morals and strip us of our conscience. It can decay our own humanity until we even view ourselves as unworthy. Now, I think this is one of those great lies that the devil can tell you. The devil talks to us and tells us is that you're unworthy. And if we buy into it, I believe we can carry around a lot of a big burden, a burden of guilt and a burden of pain. I had a friend one time, uh, true story, I had a friend one time that I went uh, snowboarding with him and we're up there and we're getting dressed and he took off his shirt and he had this monster scar across his chest and it was big. And so I asked him, what happened to you? And he said, man, when I was 19, I decided to play chicken with the train and uh, everything was going fine, you know. I stood on the tracks and waited for the train to get there. And as it got closer and closer and closer, I jumped out of the way. And I just stood there watching the train go by. He said, but I forgot about the caboose. <laughs> you ever seen an old caboose? They had these big cattle catchers on the back. And he got hit by that caboose. And he had this big scar across his chest that was left from that caboose. And that always stuck with me, you know. If we look at Matthew chapter 4, read a story about Joshua. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Joshua was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. You know, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the son of Yahweh, tell these stones to become bread. Joshua answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of Yahweh, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, that you, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Joshua answered him, It is also written, Do not put Yahweh your Elohim to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Yahshua said to him, Away from me, Satan. For it is written, Worship Yahweh your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. You know, Joshua was led into the wilderness. And in the desert, he's, he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. We have trouble fasting for one day. And he's, he's out there fasting. And then here comes the devil. You know, we're not all like Yahshua. We're not all going to pass the test. In fact, none of us passed the test. But Yahshua did. We notice in this story, when does the devil show up? He shows up after the 40 days and 40 nights. He shows up when he's hungry. And he asks him to turn these stones into bread. And Joshua knew he was just trying to deceive him. But he comes to us. The devil can come to us when you're, when you're the weakest. That's my point. I also want you to notice at the end of that story. It says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship Yahweh your Elohim and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. You know, Yahweh comforted his son. 
You know, sometimes when you're a father, there are some trials that you don't want your children to have to go through. But there are some trials that they have to go through. But after that trial's over, there's comfort. Yahweh comforts. Turn to Matthew uh, 9.9. 9. As Joshua went up from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Joshua was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Joshua said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the sinners, to call the righteous, sorry, but sinners. I think that is so wonderful to know that Yahshua, to know in our incompleteness, to know in our moments of weakness, know when we failed the test of temptation, that Yahshua is there for us. That he didn't come for the perfect, but for the sinners. I want to talk to, us, to you now about love. Robbie Zacharias has a quote about love that I think is beautiful. And he describes love in these terms. Love is a commitment that will be tested in the most vulnerable areas of spirituality. A commitment that will force you to make some very difficult choices. It is a commitment that demands that you deal with your lust, your greed, your pride, your power, your desire to control, your temper, your patience in every area of temptation that the Bible clearly talks about. It demands the quality of commitment that Yahshua demonstrates in His relationship to us. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us the definition of love. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love. I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I taught like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What is love? 
That's a beautiful description of what love is. You know, this week has been a tough week for a, a lot of us. It's been a tough week for my family. I know it's been a tough week for a lot of y'all here. It's been a tough week for our community and our town. So, you know, each week we come here and we enjoy each other's company. We enjoy each other's camaraderie. We worship together and we talk with each other. We share our bread with each other. We share ideas and our aspirations. We share our dreams and our struggles and we share pain with each other, with our neighbors. And sometimes there in life there's a lot of uh, pain that, that you have to deal with. You know, I had that friend that had the scars on his chest that were really big and really obvious. And then you have other people. They don't have scars that you can see. They just have some... You, you may not even know you're carrying them or know where they're at until somebody touches them. But I was super impressed with you guys this week. I appreciated the fact that so many of y'all reached out to my family and to my daughter. Y'all reached out in uh, texts and emails, conversations. You reached out by prayer and you uh, brought us food. There's real love that you showed uh, to us that I truly appreciate. And I really want you to know how thankful I am for your support. Uh, and for the support of uh, the family that has gone through so much pain. I pray that you would keep them in your prayers. But uh, as tragedy struck, you know, like it does sometimes, that night as we came home, we were out, and we came home, and I had people standing on my doorstep, just sitting there, multiple people, at the house and you know they're just kind of awkwardly standing there I didn't call them they weren't invited they were just on your doorstep have you ever gone to somebody's house and nobody invited you over and just stood there waiting you're at their house when they come in it's just an awkward experience and, and their body language was a little awkward my body language was a little awkward and, but I was so thankful that they were there because they had some good things to add and say. They helped. You know, in the book of Job, we read a story of a man. This man had it all. He had everything. You know? Sorry. He had everything. And, and we know the story. He walks in, or the servants come in to him, and they say, Hey, Job, you just lost all your camels. They're all gone. Job, you just lost all your sheep. Job, you just lost all your servants. And it's one after the other. And they come in and they say, Hey, Job, you've lost all your sons and daughters. They're not, they're gone. After that, what does he lose? He loses his own health, right? So he really has nothing. He really has nothing. And there's been a lot said about these three friends that he has. But we find Job after he's lost everything. He's got these three friends, and they're sitting around, and they're in the ashes. 
they literally are putting ashes on their head. And I think there's something about that. There's something about the ashes, you know. Have you ever seen a fire where you watch the where you watch the ashes? <sighs> or the wood burn and somebody inevitably is gonna go put a pulp or paper plate or a magazine or something and you can the next day or after the fire dies down, you can see that plate. The edge of it's still there, or the magazine, you can see that edge that still sitting there, and you can grab it and pick it up, and it'll just crumble, and it'll just turn to dust, you know. And it's it'll turn to dust, and, and it's hard to put the pieces back sometimes, especially when they're that small. How do you put them back together? You know, when Yahweh formed man, he formed us from the dust of the earth. He breathed life into us. And he created us in His image. And His mercy endures forever. And He gives us hope. So what is our hope? Our hope is in Yahshua, our Messiah. Rabbi Zacharias talks about the meeting between Yahshua and the Samaritan woman who went to draw water from the well. He says the Samaritan woman grasped what He said with fervor that came from an awareness of her real need. The transaction was fascinating. She had come with a bucket. He sent her back with a spring of living water. She had come as a reject. He sent her back being accepted by Yahshua himself. She came wounded and he sent her back whole. She came laden with questions. He sent her back as a source for answers. She came living a life of quiet desperation. She ran back overflowing with hope. The disciples missed it all. It was lunchtime for them. Love, what is love? Love's showing up on somebody's doorstep. Love's bringing people something to, to eat. Love is comforting. Love is kind. Love is patient. I'm sorry. My nose runs when I get emotional, apparently. But this is not about us. This is about the hope that we have in Yahshua. You know, when the world around us is falling apart, when you have this, this burning fire that at the end just leaves a bunch of ashes, at the end of it, you, you don't even understand how I'm going to put all these pieces back together. How am I going to get this thing to work? Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? You know, Yahshua came into this world and He healed the lame and He made the blind to see. You know, there's a bunch of hungry people and a bunch of sick people, and he healed them, and he gave them something to eat. Thirsty people, he gave living water, and he healed the brokenhearted. He loved his neighbor as himself and gave it all to me and you. We don't have to be perfect. Thank Yahweh for that. You can be a sinner just like me. The beauty of the salvation message is redemption, right? It's salvation. That we can be saved. It ain't over. You ain't out. You ain't done. You have a Savior that can save you. You have a Redeemer. In this life, there is no guarantee of a painless life. But a belief in Yahweh and Yahshua is a guarantee of eternal life. Wherever you're at, you may not be hurting today, but somebody probably around you somewhere is. And I just thank so much for being this week a blessing to me and my family, a comfort. And for everyone, I'm so amazed at, at everybody in town that has been so supportive of the family, 
the community around that. You know, this week I told you I drove up the driveway and there was people standing in my driveway when we got home. Just kind of awkwardly standing there. Josh was doing the same thing. He's awkwardly standing there waiting for you. Just ask, ask him in. That's all you got to do. He's waiting on an invitation for you, from you to come in, and he will come in. Matthew 11:28 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. May Yahweh be praised. May we all find salvation through Yahshua.